Before we get into today's episode, I just wanna let you all know that I finally have a Patreon. I feel like that's something a lot of people have been saying. I don't know why you didn't get one already, but um, I finally do. I officially launched it this Friday. We've already got quite a few patrons and we're all hanging out in this private little Discord server, having a great time, enjoying some of the perks that are coming up. And if you wanna be part of that, make sure to click on my Patreon link so that you can join the fun as well. Mega churches. Like a religious shopping mall in some cases, these massive Christian communities have exploded onto the scene in recent decades. Yet, while you may know them for their stadium-like structures and concerts, megachurches are slowly becoming more known for something else, their scams. Hello everyone, and welcome to another Multi-Level Mondays. Now, in previous episodes, I have talked about specific megachurches and televangelists before, such as Jim Baker. But today we're going to be talking about megachurches as a whole, like how did they come to be and why are they becoming notorious for scamming people? So let's get right into it. Future. I'm excited about my future. I am victorious. I am victorious. Now, the term megachurch can be attributed to any Protestant Christian congregation with a weekly attendance of about 2,000 people or more. These megachurches seem to be non-denominational, but a large portion of them are Southern Baptist, and a majority of the congregants identify as evangelical. Generally speaking, a megachurch is exactly what you'd expect, a massive, supersized church. Many of these megachurches, about 70% of them, are in a Southern Sun Belt and unsurprisingly in the Bible Belt, with California, Texas, Florida, and Georgia having the highest concentrations. Megachurches are also predominantly white, 82%, and the average age of attendance is on the younger side, between 30 to 40 years old. There are Catholic churches with large congregations too, but contemporary worship, charismatic leadership, state-of-the-art sound systems, and incorporation of technology are all very important pieces of the megachurch pie. It can't be a megachurch without a stage and Christian pop rock music, right? Now, although this may be our definition of a megachurch these days, large churches obviously didn't always have these sorts of things. After all, back in the early years, speaker systems weren't really a part of churches, mega or otherwise. As large cathedrals began cropping up in England, evangelists such as Charles Spurgeon would preach 10 times a week to audience of 6,000 or more without the aid of any amplification. According to one source, he grew the congregation of New Park Street Church, later named the Metropolitan Tabernacle from an attendance of 232 in 1854 to 5,311 in 1892, making it the largest independent congregation in the world for a time. Prime ministers, presidents, and other notables flocked to hear him. However, attendance there today has been considerably less than 2,000 for several decades. These were not Europe's first megachurches either. The last 10 years of John Calvin's life in Geneva were preoccupied with missions in France, such as in Berserac. From day to day, we are growing, and God has caused his word to bear such fruit that at sermons on Sundays, there were about four to 5,000 people, he wrote. 
So if we focus on attendance alone, you could make the argument that megachurches have been around for hundreds of years, with some letters indicating as many as 9,000 people in attendance each week. In later years, like 1801, the Cane River Revival had a reported 20,000 members during the Second Great Awakening. In the 1920s, the Angelus Temple in Los Angeles had well over 15,000. Yet the modern day megachurch seemingly wasn't born until the 1950s or even as late as the 1970s. Nearly all megachurches that exist today were founded after 1955, but the general consensus seems to be that modern megachurches exploded in popularity after Roe v. Wade in 1973, which legalized abortion. This landmark case inspired conservative pastors to not only preach about the gospel, but to take an active political role. Reverend Jerry Falwell contributed to this megachurch rise substantially when he founded the Moral Majority, a political action group, which played an important part in electing Republican Ronald Reagan as president shortly after it was founded. That year, evangelicals voted in record numbers and soon Falwell's church, Thomas Road Baptist in Virginia, had tens of thousands of members. But again, this wasn't just a big church. Thomas Road Baptist was a lifestyle. Falwell added new ministries, creating a sort of subculture for the congregation. He founded the Lynchburg Christian Academy, an elementary school that later included a high school and even a YMCA camp. Evangelicals and especially fundamentalists were incredibly supportive of this, especially as sex education programs began to spread throughout public schools. My sources claim that the fundamentalists especially felt ostracized from the public, and so this was their way of becoming part of a community again. Falwell also founded Lynchburg Baptist College in 1971, which later became Liberty University, a for-profit college we mentioned in the ITT Tech episode. Here, Falwell's strict and supposedly Christian rules were law. Smoking and drinking were forbidden entirely. Interracial dating was prohibited unless the parents of both students provided permission. And the professors and students were expected to attend church three times a week. Some of these rules and regulations have changed over the years, but the point remains the same. These megachurches became a place for many evangelical and fundamentalist Christians to run things their way as the world changed. The Hartford Institute for Religion and Research breaks the appeal for megachurches down even deeper into a few concise points. The first being that many of the megachurch members live in a mega institutional world. Church leaders literally looked for shopping malls of all things for inspiration and created their megachurches with educational, political, fitness, support, and religious programs all under one roof. Their article explains, the creation of these large congregations came about. Then gifted, innovative leaders began to draw masses of persons around them and around their visions of a relevant lived Christianity. As this growth occurred, these leaders drew upon the forms and structures of everyday life to fashion a reality which would meet the needs of their institutions and the requirements of their membership. As a result, their creations, megachurches, both fit their message of a practical, no-nonsense religion that resonated with their experiences and those flocking to hear the message. Both the message and the form fit the constituency. Another reason people are drawn to the megachurches is that many of the congregants were probably born in a large hospital, attend large universities, and went to rock concerts. The setting is familiar and comfortable. Sure, finding a parking spot and having to walk to a venue may be a pain, but if megachurches of a congregation work in an office park, then it's no different. Megachurch advertisements have even said as much. The difference is worth the distance. Have you noticed how far you have to travel in this metropolitan area to get to a shopping center or grocery store, school or post office, doctor or mechanic? 
Our membership assembles from a radius of 20 miles. Someone near you worships here. The road to the house of a friend is never very long. Megachurches are also bound to have something for any member of their congregation, whether that's the daycare, the school, the support system, they fulfill those needs. Plus, with their thousands of members and high visibility, they send the message that religion and Christianity are alive and thriving. What Christian wouldn't want to be a part of that movement when the world around them appears to become more and more what they consider more secular? However you personally feel about megachurches, I think it's easy to see why they appeal to so many evangelical and fundamentalist Christians. As I've said before, I don't really care what you believe so long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Unfortunately, megachurches have been known to create a ripe environment for scams, corruption, and even abuse. So we're gonna start by taking a look at some of the more infamous scams first. Obey the Lord and sow that seed and watch what God will do with you. If you sow money, you won't reap money. Don't you stop sowing offerings. Well, they won't let us go to church. Well, email it in there, text give or something, but you get your tithe in that church. If you have to go take it down there and drop it off and unstick it under the door. Religious-based financial fraud is something that's too common for comfort. Janice Malecki, a New York securities lawyer who specializes in affinity fraud cases, said in an interview with CNBC's American Greed, People want to trust, especially in affinity situations where people feel more comfortable for one reason or another. Be it a church or an ethnic community, they tend to not look as hard as they should at what's in front of them. Self-proclaimed teen millionaire and supposed preacher Efren Taylor managed to gain $16 million by preaching the prosperity gospel to church congregations in 43 states and by selling promissory notes that he said were backed by small businesses and housing projects. In actuality, this was nothing more than a Ponzi scheme. By the time Taylor was caught and sentenced to 19 years in prison, hundreds of families were destroyed and lost everything. Anita Dorio, one of his victims said that, quote, biblical principles are investing wisely, responsibly, and for the purposes of furthering the kingdom. But also God wants us to be prosperous, end quote. Yet it's this idea of personal fulfillment that many Christians opposed to megachurches take issue with. Oz Guinness, a social scientist and the author of numerous books around faith and society, claims that the Christian faith has become too worldly and has succumbed to consumerism, diluting the Christian message. One article from CQ Researcher reads, indeed, many megachurches take what is known as a seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive approach. Many megachurches preach what have been called the prosperity gospel, promoting personal fulfillment and success. Some argue that megachurches steer clear of more difficult topics like sin and focus on God's love and what their congregation wants to hear. However, pastors who continually talk about how God wants you to be prosperous can also use that as a selling tool. Some sources trace prosperity gospel back to 1905 with Max Weber's book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Borrowing from these beliefs about a decade later, Baptist minister Russell Conwell became known for his lecture called Acres of Diamonds, where he told impoverished and dejected people across the country not to blame structural inequality for their struggles, but themselves. There's some truth to examining your worth ethic, sure, but we can't pretend structural inequality doesn't exist either. Over the years, other preachers took it much further. 
The theology of Essek William Kenyon, an early 20th century radio evangelist, also helped fuel this new thought movement or mind healing movement throughout the United States. I really won't get too deep into theology here today, but to simplify what's going on, the idea of positive words having the power to make blessings materialize started to spread. Basically, if you prayed hard enough, you could make good things happen and bad things go away. Eventually, religious leaders translated this concept into wealth. In the 1950s, many Pentecostal pastors taught that wealth was a divine right and terms like seed faith started floating around. Simply put, if you gave a seed or a monetary gift to the church, God would make that seed flourish and eventually return it to you with even more money than you put in. Give $10 now, receive 100 later, right? Some sources have actually called prosperity gospel the worst pyramid scheme ever. After all, the two scams share a lot of striking similarities. The first is that the prosperity gospel is based on the deceptive success at the guy at the top. Think about it, whether it's Herbalife, LuLaRoe, Monet, the leaders of these types of companies and those high earners, they consistently boast about their income, their cars, their house, and their successes. They sell people the idea that they can do it too. Pastors who teach prosperity gospel do the exact same thing, claiming that they wanted the nicest house in the neighborhood and God gave it to them. Prominent megachurch pastors like Joel Austin, who I will cover in a future episode, have said, quote, your dream may look impossible, but God said his blessings will chase you down, that you're surrounded by favor, that goodness and mercy are following you, that he wants to give you the desires of your heart. Don't be afraid to ask big, take the limits off of God, end quote. While that may sound innocent enough or as if it's only meant to be encouraging, the people who buy these pastor's books and donate to his church fund his extravagant lifestyle. They are the only ones giving that pastor success. The money that megachurch pastors receive is ultimately from their congregation, but we don't really see that aspect mentioned, do we? As in pyramid schemes, the prosperity gospel is often sold to desperate people. Norman Vincent Peale, author of The Power of Positive Thinking, Joel Austin, Jim Baker, all of them have preached the prosperity gospel to their congregations. According to a 2006 Times poll, 31% of American Christians believe that if you give your money to God, God will bless you with more money. And despite that rhetoric, those people aren't getting any richer, but their pastors are. The BBC writes, Televangelist Todd Kuntz has a well-worn routine. He dresses in a suit pulls out a Bible and urges viewers to pledge a very specific amount of money. Don't delay, don't delay, he urges, calmly but emphatically. It sounds simple, absurdly so, but Kuntz knows his audience extremely well. He broadcasts on Christian cable channels often late into the night, drawing in viewers who lack financial literacy and are desperate for change. I understand the laws that govern insurance, stocks, and bonds, and all that is involved with Wall Street, he once said, looking directly into the camera. God has called me as a financial deliverer. Crucially, he always refers to the money as a seed, a $273 seed, a $333 seed, a turnaround seed, depending on the broadcast. If viewers plant one, the amount will come back to them multiplied, he says. It is an investment in their faith and their future. And once again, like in an MLM, if those who give and give these seeds don't see any prosperity, then it's their own fault. In an MLM, distributors are told that if they earn no money, it's because they didn't work hard enough, even though the system is stacked against them. Here, followers may be told that their faith just wasn't strong enough or that they have a hidden sin. 
One man, Larry, who estimates that he's given about $20,000 to Kuntz operators over the years, has interpreted a gift of groceries from a neighbor and a promise of a few extra hours of work for his wife as evidence. It just doesn't really seem like a great return on investment though. By all means, if you can't afford to give to a church and that's what you want to spend your money on, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your earnings. Go ahead and do that. That is your choice. But it's disheartening to see people like Larry who are genuinely struggling to make ends meet, giving all they have to these multi-million dollar ministries. Thankfully, Larry and his wife, Darcy, realized their mistake and stopped giving, but only after exhausting all of their funds. Kuntz was actually jailed this past year for tax evasion after spending the money he received on himself, his condo, and his vehicles. He apparently listed them as business expenses when they were obviously not. Now, for the critics that might be out there, I understand that Kuntz is a televangelist, not a megachurch pastor. Yet he preaches the same theology, which is, as some sources argue, not theology at all, but a form of oppression. Like pyramid schemes, victims want to believe that if they just hope or pray hard enough, they'll soon have money, health, and esteem that's promised. But that's where this prosperity gospel preached in megachurches is so dangerous, because it's a promise that these pastors can't keep. To be fair, I need to mention, as always, that this is not the belief held by every single megachurch pastor. According to one Time article, the movement's renaissance has infuriated a number of prominent pastors, theologians, and commentators. Fellow mega pastor Rick Warren, whose book, The Purpose Driven Life, has outsold Austin's by a ratio of seven to one, finds the very basis of prosperity laughable. This idea that God wants everyone to be wealthy, he snorts, There is a word for that, baloney. It's creating a false idol. You don't measure your self-worth by your net worth. I can show you millions of faithful followers of Christ who live in poverty. Why isn't everyone in the church a millionaire? So it is true that not every single megachurch scams their congregants, but unfortunately enough of them do to keep these prosperity gospel scammers in business. And so they are still here today. In addition to the prosperity gospel setting up a potentially dangerous precedent, there are plenty of pastors who have taken advantage of the mindset shown by their congregations. One Texas megachurch pastor, Kirby John Cadwall, is probably one of the most recent examples of this. He was the senior pastor of Houston's Windsor Village United Methodist Church, which has about 14,000 members, according to AP News. Federal prosecutors say that he and a Shreveport investment advisor, Smith, persuaded their victims to invest $3.5 million in Chinese bonds. Bonds that were issued by the former Republic of China, which lost power in 1949. Not only are the bonds not recognized by the government, but they hold absolutely no value whatsoever. Caldwell used about $900,000 he received from the scheme to maintain his lifestyle and pay down credit cards and mortgages, according to the Justice Department. Caldwell has a master's degree from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and had worked in the financial industry. In November, 2020, Smith was also sentenced to six years in prison. And to be completely frank here, I don't care that he's apologized, even if I'm glad that he's at least paid all of the money back just for those families' sakes. The fact is that this went on for years, starting in 2013, and that's disgusting. He's someone who's incredibly trusted. He was even the spiritual advisor to George Bush and Barack Obama when they were in office. Although I'm not particularly surprised by someone using their power in this way, there's still something especially upsetting when it's done using God's name. Even if you don't believe in God, it you know sucks for the people that do. 
Aside from non-existent Chinese bonds, this is not the only investment scam church leaders have done and gotten in on to kind of, I don't know, siphon money out of their congregations. Greater Ministries head Gerald Payne told 18,000 victims on his nationwide roadshows that his financial program was based on the gospel of St. Luke. He claimed to be friends with the Liberian president and that if churchgoers donated, their money would be invested in gold and diamond mines there. He claimed everyone who invested would double their money in less than two years, but needless to say, anyone who trusted in him lost everything. There are an alarming amount of church-run Ponzi schemes. Although one church in Maryland wasn't a megachurch, they weren't small either. The congregation was about 1,000 members. Three supposed pastors claimed they had knowledge as traders and could guarantee a return on foreign exchange and cryptocurrency investments. They recruited congregants and other investors into what became a $28 million Ponzi scheme. FBI special agent in charge Jennifer Boone said in a statement issued by the Justice Department, the accused used the victim's hard-earned money for luxury cars, private jets, and family vacations, leaving their investors with nothing. They took advantage of the trust their congregants placed in them, giving them false hope of financial security at a time when a sense of financial insecurity was prevalent. Much of the money raised was from African immigrants working in the medical field. A fourth example took place at Bethel Church in California, a mega church with over 10,000 members. Matthew Piercy and Kenneth Winton set up an investment company called Family Wealth Legacy and Zola as fronts to commit wire fraud, mail fraud, and money laundering. And he did this all so that they could live large and pay off their personal debts. In total, the pair, though primarily Piercy, it seems, swindled investors out of $35 million and only 8.8 million has been paid back. So the question here is, why does this happen? It's not just because of the prosperity gospel, but there's another aspect at play when it comes to megachurches and Ponzi schemes, affinity fraud. The definition is exactly what you'd expect. Investment scams prey upon vulnerable communities and the fraudsters will often pretend to be members of the group themselves. Scams have happened multiple times in Mormon churches for this very reason. And we've talked about how massive MLM scams are prevalent within the LDS church. If you're religious, you're bound to trust someone that's close to you, someone in your church, much more than a stranger. So naturally, a massive church that operates as its own community and tells its members they have a divine right to be wealthy is ripe for these types of scams. But here's the problem. Even if we know that churches are prone to these scams and that fraud within them is a massive problem, there is very little reporting actually done on it. I'm sure most of you can guess the reason, but it's the simple fact that churches don't have to file an annual information return. When I've talked about other shady nonprofits, there's typically some sort of report that I can go over where we can easily point out any financial discrepancies. This is naturally for transparency's sake. You want and deserve to know where your money is going. But churches don't play by the same rules. Walter Pavlo, a writer for Forbes, said that after seeing a Washington Post investigation and fraud in nonprofits, he realized there weren't any churches on it. He contacted Alton Sizemore of Forensic Strategic Solutions in Alabama who told him about these tax laws. In Alabama, Sizemore said, fraud within churches is a major problem. With so little reporting and transparency, one can see why. Pavlo continues, the problem goes beyond churches in the middle of the Bible Belt in Alabama. Take the case of Catholic priest, Reverend Michael Jude Fay, who pled guilty to stealing $1.3 million from congregation collections in Darien, Connecticut. 
According to a New York Times article, a bookkeeper and an assistant pastor at St. John's Church discovered the theft and showed their findings to the Catholic Diocese of Bridgeport, but nothing happened. The two then took matters into their own hands, hired a private investigator, and took their case to authorities. While Faye would go on to be sentenced to 37 months in prison, the duo that reported their fraud quit their jobs at the church under pressure from diocese officials. Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Hamilton, Massachusetts has conducted research on all aspects of finance related to Christian churches around the world through its Center for the Study of Global Christianity. The director of the center, Todd M. Johnson, PhD, said there is a lack of research on fraud within the church, but that is something he has been trying to change. One study claims that Christian churches lost $63 billion each year due to ecclesiastical crime, as much as 95% of fraud within churches is undetected or unreported. In 2016 alone, Americans donated over $120 billion to religious organizations, most of that being congregations donating to their churches. And with these megachurches, which are really a lot like corporations, it's worrying that we've really got no idea where that money goes. Whether or not you want churches to pay income taxes, shouldn't they at least be required to be as transparent as other nonprofits? Well, before we dig into that next point, taxes and churches in the IRS, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. Everyone loves ordering stuff online from the comfort of their home, but we all faced out when we see that promo code field taunting us as we check out. If only we had that little magical code to save us 15% or more. That's why there's Honey. Honey is the online shopping tool that scours the internet looking for promo codes and then applies the best ones to your cart. It's like getting coupons without ever having to keep track of them or ever remembering to use them. Honey is super easy to use. You install it on your browser and then you shop like you normally would. When you're ready to check out, the Honey button drops down. It auto applies any working codes. It finds straight to your cart and then boom, money saved. As you guys know, I recently launched my candle shop and I was really surprised that some of the wholesale manufacturers that I'm working with, like Honey works with them. So I was like, really? You're gonna save me like 10, 15% on my order? I was like, that's so cool. It essentially paid for the shipping cause all of it's so heavy, but I was like, that's really cool. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by using it, you're doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. I'd never recommend something I don't actually use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com MLM. That's joinhoney.com MLM. Here's a bonkers stat that I recently just learned. 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles get thrown away every single year. And each of those is about 90% water. All going probably to the Pacific garbage patch, that floating garbage patch in the middle of the ocean. And here's where Blue Land comes in. And this is such a cool company, guys. Blue Land lets you buy the bottle once and you just keep refilling it forever, eliminating tons of plastic waste, maybe literally. Just fill Blue Land's beautiful bottles with warm water, pop in one of their tabs, and then soon you'll have a powerful and effective cleaning product with great scents like rose bergamot and lily mint. Plus, Blue Land's bottles start at just $10 when you buy a kit, and you get to reuse them forever with refillable tablets that start at $2. And I gotta tell you, I was skeptical as a heck. So I went ahead and tried some floor cleaner, and I put it right around the spot by the backyard where Casper likes to go in and out because his paws get really dirty outside, and so there's always just this little dirt patch that I constantly have to clean. So I popped in a tab, I filled up the bottle, I sprayed it, wiped it clean, and I was like, 
Well, damn, this looks nice. And it smells nice too, which is kind of the added bonus. That rose bergamot's actually quite nice. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash MLM. That's 15% off your first order of any product Blueland orders at blueland.com slash MLM, blueland.com slash MLM. is in what you got left. And if you will sow what you got left, God said, I'll give you back whatever it was. So taxes and the IRS. There is a destructive cycle going on between the two that's gotten especially out of hand in recent political climate. Churches, if they want to retain their tax-exempt status, aren't supposed to get political as the IRS says that nonprofits can't act on behalf of or in opposition of any candidate running for public office. If they do, they'll lose their tax breaks. But I'm sure as many of you know, these megachurches break that rule consistently. Whether it's by reading anti-Obama letters or in recent years, actually campaigning for Trump. The reinforcements need to come in. So send your power in your presence to touch this president. Show him who you are. Show him your love. Show him the love of Yet, people. because of the Lobbying Disclosure Act of 1995 allowing for churches to spend as much as 20% of their income on lobbying, and because we can't see what churches actually spend their money on in the first place, these megachurches are actually able to lobby on political issues without anyone actually noticing. And that's a big problem. Of course, these rules have been broken for quite a while now. Reuters discusses how in 2012, Pastor Jim Garlow at the Skyline Wesleyan megachurch in California broke those very rules. You'd think that they're doing this in a sneaky way or just you know gently nudging their congregation towards certain political candidates, but no, that's not the case. Instead, Reuters says that these pastors intentionally try to provoke the IRS, with some even going so far as to send in DVD recordings of their own sermons to them, as if daring them to take action. The IRS's lack of response has literally become a joke. In fact, it is so much of a joke that Alliance Defending Freedom, or the ADF, which is another organization I've discussed previously, has made an entire day devoted to breaking this very law. They call it Pulpit Freedom Sunday, and on their own website, they explain. Pulpit Freedom Sunday is an event associated with the Pulpit Initiative, a legal effort designated to secure the free speech rights of pastors in the pulpit. Pulpit Freedom Sunday encourages pastors to exercise their constitutionality protected freedom to speak truth into every area of life from the pulpit. Alliance Defending Freedom also hopes to eventually go to court to have the Johnson Amendment struck down as unconstitutional. The Johnson Amendment, by the way, forbids nonprofits from getting political in the first place. And look, I do believe in free speech. I I really, really do. But there are also consequences for how you use it. There are consequences for defamation, for Alex Jones saying Sandy Hook never happened, and there need to be consequences for nonprofits that take a political stance. No one has said that pastors can't speak their mind, but my argument here isn't that they shouldn't be petitioning for legislation meant to undermine human rights and a tax haven and not have to shine the least bit of light on their finances. Unfortunately, the IRS just doesn't seem willing to intervene because of this incredibly murky territory. The 2012 Reuters article reads, the situation is fraught with peril for the IRS, which needs to be seen as apolitical. 
when it cracks down on political activities prescribed by the 501c3 regulations, it is inevitably branded as partisan. When the target is a church, mosque, or synagogue, enforcement puts two fundamental American values at odds, freedom of speech and the separation of church and state. Although the agency has enforced the tax exemption status rules against churches in the past, it has so far ignored the provocations of Freedom Sunday. The especially problematic aspect to all of this is the fact that as megachurches get away with it, other churches follow suit. Catholic churches started calling for their own fortnight for freedom and mobilizing against the Obama administration's healthcare stance on contraceptives. The IRS was silent on this too. And it's not as if this was just a few dollars lost either. Federal tax break on donations and exemptions totaled tens of billions of dollars each year. And as for the nearly 100 billion annually that gets donated, well, if a church doesn't voluntarily disclose how they're spending it, we can't know where it's all going. Some churches do take it upon themselves to create annual financial reports, but since it's not a requirement to disclose this, I can't vouch for how or to verify the accuracy in any of those statements. In 2010, the Washington Post released an article detailing how evangelical nonprofits are starting to classify themselves as churches to allow them to hide their salaries. Ministry Watch also released a report on the situation called When a Church is Not a Church, which frankly says it all in the title alone. The article claims that even though they believe the government has no business interfering in a church's affairs, these churches are starting to make it a part of the government's business when they try to use their tax-exempt status to commit fraud and to feed the lavish lifestyles of their leaders. Other organizations have seen what megachurches have been able to get away with, and now they're following in their footsteps. Focus on the Family, yet another organization I've discussed previously, now claims church exemption status, as do many others. It's especially concerning to me that a shady nonprofit that already has a tax-exempt status is now not going to tell anyone, government and donor alike, how they spend their money. Ministry Watch claims Focus on the Family does voluntarily release their 990 forms on their website as of the time of the article was released, but they could effectively choose to stop that at any time and there's nothing to really say they can't. Aside from all of this making it easier for shady activities to take place, Ministry Watch makes the point that this hurts good nonprofits too. Where there is a lack of information, trust goes down and disinformation can flourish. Donors lose confidence in individual organizations and society loses confidence in the value of the entire sector they represent. The thing is, I don't even agree with Ministry Watch's position as they go on to say that they do support Focus on the Family as an organization but I can appreciate that they, even as a religious and conservative source, say that hiding behind the church exemption status is not going to stop critics. They write, hiding behind the church exemption will not end the attacks these ministries fear, and it will have the unintended consequence of alienating a skeptical public who has been taught to believe that when people have nothing to hide, they usually don't. So to donors, we say, don't give money to a ministry if you are not sure where the money is going. That should be a minimum responsibility of a good steward. If your favorite ministry is not releasing its Form 990s to the public, you should be asking why. In June of 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that even if they don't support same-sex marriage, religious organizations will not lose their tax exemptions. Yet in 1938, the court ruled that a school would lose tax-exempt status if its policies violate fundamental national public policy. In an article for Time, Mark Oppenheimer calls for the end of the church's tax-exempt status entirely if they dissent from public policy on matters of race and sexuality. 
Mark makes the point that if dissension is unlawful, simple as that, why are we rewarding them in the first place? The fact is, megachurches have an easy time abusing the system we've given them. Organizations like Focus on the Family have declared themselves a church, even though they don't have congregations, but they fund political radio shows and other programming. Megachurches benefit from public funds provided by taxpayers because of their status, and yet the Lakewood megachurch where Joel Osteen preaches turned victims away during a hurricane, left them out, and locked the doors. The IRS has proven themselves to be absolutely useless in this situation, even as scams get more out of hand and more organizations are signing up for this tax-exempt, transparency-free status. And personally, I feel that if a church wants to be discriminatory, then there should be a price to pay for that. And that means you don't get your tax-exempt status. What really sucks about taking that position is I have to say that I understand that that's a controversial opinion to hold when it really shouldn't be. When these megachurches lobby against LGBTQ rights, they should lose their tax-exempt status. And yet, because we don't know where their money is going, well, I think you see the cycle. To say that megachurches rub me the wrong way would be a gross understatement. This is only the tip of the iceberg. These are only the financial issues I have with megachurches. Still, I did want to briefly touch on why these places are so rife with scams, and I hope I've been able to shed a bit of light on that topic today. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Multi-Level Mondays. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. If you wanna catch up with me and any projects that I'm involved in, make sure you click on my Linktree link. It's gonna have links to all of my social media and other channels, projects, adventures, whatever I'm up to, you'll find it there. So again, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to spend it here with me. I appreciate it and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.